The Right Optics by Silmo. Presented by Jason Kirk. Hello and welcome to The Right Optics by Silmo. I'm Jason Kirk, founder and managing director of Kirk & Kirk. I grew up in optics and my family's involvement in the industry goes all the way back to 1919 when my grandfather Sidney and great uncle Percy converted an old sewing machine into a lens cutter and founded Kirk Brothers. My guest today is Louis Fulligar. Lou is a veteran of the industry and created Specs Addict, an agency specialising in all things digital and social media for optical boutiques and wholesalers. He runs the luxury eyewear forum website and Facebook groups and the loft eyewear shows in North America. He does everything. He also has an incredible story, living through a full lung transplant only five years ago. Louis joins me now from Greensboro, North Carolina. Hello, Lou. Hey, mate. Good to hear from you. Great to see you. So, Lou, quite a journey because that accent isn't Greensboro, North Carolina, is it? Uh, it's Melbourne, Australia. How did you make that transition? From What, what brought that along? Uh, I was actually decided to leave Australia on a little sabbatical back in 2000 uh, and found myself in Florida for a little bit. And uh, I was seeing somebody who got a job in Atlanta and I ended up uh, deciding that I wanted to stay in the US and, and searched around for some opticians uh, that would perhaps hire me. And um, I was lucky enough to uh, come across a guy who had about seven high-end luxury optical stores in Atlanta. Um, he jumped at the chance uh, to hire me right away and I ended up drive, renting a car and driving to Atlanta the next day and um, starting as an optician there a couple of weeks later. And what was it you were doing in Australia before you left? Uh, I owned, uh, with a couple of partners, uh, two optical stores. Um, and we also owned a, a government contract for um, in the state of Victoria for uh, welfare patients to get their eyeglasses um, with a, through a government subsidised program. How did you actually get into optics? Because I know that your dad has a great story as well. I, know, I, I remember talking to you about this in America recently. So tell us a little bit about that and then, and then how you managed to fall into optics. Uh, we moved. I was actually born in London and... My parent, my father was a musician, um, and in the mid to late '60s, he decided to get out of the, mu- the music business and um, and go back to work. He had a young family, obviously, and um, around 1970, uh, he decided that, or mum and dad decided that it would be a, a good idea to make a move um, to Australia. And you probably know back back in those days, they had the ten quid special. Um, so mum, dad, and I uh, hopped on a boat. And, and in those days, it was you would basically use up the spare rooms on a, a luxury cruise liner. So we ended up taking six weeks to travel from the UK to Australia with people who'd travel, who'd paid thousands of pounds to travel around the world. And then there was a bunch of, you know, riffraff like us there at the pool. <laughs> and so you grew up there. You grew up in Australia. What was your first job? My first job was probably the best job I've ever had. I was working um, part-time through the school holidays and, and after school um, in a department store in the, in the town that we lived in. My first job there was to work, was, I was working in the vinyl record department, which was fantastic. This was in 1981, so at the beginning of 1981. So lots of great music coming out at the time and I was right there playing vinyl records for all my friends. Is there something special that you took from the jobs that were outside of optics that, you, that you've that you always carried with you that have helped you when you're looking into the optical world? Yeah, luckily enough, I was I was in that record department for probably six to eight months, I think, and then they moved me 
to the uh, small appliances department where I sold like um, clock radios and ghetto blasters and vacuum cleaners. And um, I stayed in that department probably for another two years, I guess. And the lady that was my boss at the time, she was from Jersey. She was a, a stickler for customer service and, you know, keeping the the counters clean and and just having the whole department ship shape all the time. And of course, I was you know, 15, 16 years old at the time. And, you know, most kids can barely make their bed at that point in their life. And this lady, even though I couldn't stand her for probably the first year, she taught me so much that I never even probably thanked her for until, you know, later on in life. And if I can add, um, the other thing I learned, is particularly when I was in the um, vinyl record department, was about asking people questions. So even as a young person, you know, you get people coming up to the counter asking if I knew the song that went like whatever. So you would encourage people to sing the song to you and all those sorts of things. So just that idea that uh, you're encouraging conversations with people was something I learned, you know, really early on as a 15, 16 year old. So when I finally ended up in an optical shop later on, um, I had a lot of the tools already. So how did you move from, from that to optics? What inspired you to get involved? Uh, was it really inspiration actually? Back in the um, early to mid 80s in Australia, there was a dearth of jobs. Like if you got the Saturday newspaper, there was, you know, a couple of thousand jobs listed there every weekend. Um, And at the time, I recall I was 17 or so and I made some major announcement to my parents that I wasn't going back to school um, and I was going to take a year off. And that went over like a lead balloon. I'm sure you can understand (laughs) And I think my father said something like, well, not in my house, you're not. And um, so I got home from work, the, the Saturday job, you know, the next week. And my parents had opened the newspaper up and circled like four different jobs that I was going to go and apply for the following week. And I remember a couple of them. One was a, a truck jockey uh, delivering furniture for a furniture company. The second one was a librarian at the university in Melbourne. And the third one was an optician, as an apprentice optician, which I'd worn glasses for a couple of years, so I had a kind of an idea what it was, and it seemed like something uh, that I could get a my trade papers in, you know, in three or four years, and then walk away at twenty one and have a at least have a trade under my belt if I wanted to do something else. And I ended up going for three interviews for that, and I and I got the job remarkably, and. Um, and I'm still in the same business like you, Jason. I'm always fascinated, and I have been, I've been in, in optics for like 30 years now, and I'm always fascinated by the difference and the similarities between optics in different parts of the world. So what did you notice when you arrived in America and, and between what was going on in Australia and what you were perceiving was going on in Atlanta and around you? It was, it was not the first time I was exposed to luxury eyewear because I had a, a good friend in Melbourne uh, who me and my business partner used to fill in for uh, when he would take vacation at his high-end store. Um, and he was one of maybe, you know, five luxury stores in the, in the whole of the country. Um, so we had a little bit of exposure there. Uh, but when I got to Atlanta uh, and finding, a, you know, it was a quite a big store as well, having so many different eyewear collections that I, you know, some I'd not heard of before um, and meeting staff and opticians there that were up-to-date and au fait with the language of luxury eyewear, um, that was a, a big eye-opener for me um, and something that I thought 
you know, if I go back to Australia at some point, I'm going to take all that stuff back with me because it was um, it was quite the idea of of being able to sell luxury eyewear, you know, easily and and finding the market for it um, was pretty much unheard of in Australia at the time. You know, people were people might carry a couple of more expensive collections, but for the most part, it was pretty generic. And so, did you did you get some time on the road selling eyewear to opticians? Yeah. So what happened is I ended up working. Um, for this place for a couple of years um, because I was uh, on a on a visa for the US um, and a good friend of both of ours, Tim Webb, happened to come into the store one day and tell me about a job that was uh, going at the company he worked for, which was Optical Shop of Aspen, and he thought that I would be perfect for it. And also, I think he just wanted someone to go and have a few beers with. Uh, so I went for the interview out in California and, and got the job. and. A month later, I started on the road covering, I think, 20 states in the US and Canada. And I had not traveled out of Georgia at the time. So it was quite an eye-opener the first few weeks of travel. 20 states, that's enormous. I mean, how much time are you spending on the road? Well, back then I was single. uh, So I spent uh, 24-7 on the road, basically. One, I think if you're going to be a good rep, you need to love traveling. And I'm I'm sure you do as well. Um, So also, you know, for people from Australia, the UK or whatever, America just seems like such a vast, unique wilderness to us, right? So uh, to get to travel all these places that you might have heard the names of the towns or cities, you know, on TV as a kid growing up, it was quite an adventure, to be honest. And I really, really enjoyed it. I ended up repping for 13 years in total um, in the US and Canada. Industry voices, insight and inspiration. The right optics by Silmo. Louis, I wanted to ask you, so you've been in optics a long time, you know your way around. And at some point you decided that there was room to um, welcome the technology that was taking over in the rest of the world. And optics was a little bit slow, but you set up the luxury eyewear forum. Why did you do that? It came out of of repping and, and being on the road in the US. I was driving... I still remember it to this day. I was driving from somewhere in uh, Ohio to uh, Pennsylvania, and I just had this amazing conversation with a with an optician and about a particular optical subject. And I got in the car and I drove to Pennsylvania. And the next morning, I was talking to a guy in another store and had almost the identical conversation. And the and the topic we were talking about the guy I'd seen in, you know, the, the night before had had these questions and the guy that I was talking to that morning had the answers to the questions. So I said, you know, you need to give this guy a call and um, and have a chat about it. I know you don't know each other, but you're both opticians and you both have the, are on the same page, you know. Um, and later that day I was driving and thought, wouldn't it be good if there was somewhere that these guys could just naturally talk to each other without me having to facilitate the, comp- the, the phone call? Um, and that, that night I started, um, you know, Facebook was pretty new then. Um, so that night I worked out how to start a group and we ended up being the first opticians group, I think anywhere on Facebook. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. And hats off to you, Lou, because I think that was a really transformative moment for the industry. Um, really important and set the pace for a lot of people to take optics forward. And one of the things about that that really resonates with me is that it was creating community. So how important do you think that is then and now for our industry? I think 
community in general, whether it's in your personal life or your kids' lives or anything like that is really important. Um, and that's kind of the reason I started it as well. Um, in, in my experience, just outside of optics, we, we touched on that before, I was a, um, an Australian football coach back in Australia for about five years. I coached, you know, 15 to 18 year old boys to play Australian football in a mountain township in, in Australia. There's really, especially back then in the mid nineties, there's nothing to do. So giving these kids a purpose and a, and a sport to play brought them, their parents and, and everybody else into this community of people that had, you know, something else to do other than just at the time, probably smoking dope or, or whatever, you know? Um, so from those, from that idea uh, of getting people together um, for a common purpose, that's that's why I felt like the luxury eyewear forum could work. Looking back, I pat myself on the back a little bit because I think it was a really good idea at the time. Um, but I think, as you said, it actually got people who, like me, when I first went to Atlanta, had only a very small experience of luxury eyewear. I, it got a whole lot of new people involved in in what it is so i think you know the last 10 years you've got a much more educated group of opticians uh coming to into our sector of the market yeah no thank you luke because it really has uh, been important to the industry and and um it's it's nothing short of uh, transformative um getting the independent sector to work together is a really interesting point and something that's very close to my heart i think that during the pandemic there was a real opportunity for a reset. And I really felt that that was a chance when we could all step back and have a little think about what we were doing and actually start to work together. And it didn't really happen. I didn't really feel it happened. Um, what do you feel about that? Uh, I tend to agree with you. Um, just from my experience, business experience, um, at the start of the pandemic, um, my my business dropped by probably half. And I was you know, starting to panic like everybody else. And then, you know, things panned out over the, the next two to three months and all of a sudden people started reopening their stores, particularly here in America. And I noticed that people started to get their act together. And I think to touch on your point, instead of working together with other opticians or trying to work out a solution, they really went out on the on their own. They found their own solutions. They didn't reach, I, I found that most people didn't reach out to anybody else but they just tried everything they could to make it work. So I have 10 or 15 clients that I work with all the time and I found that I was on the phone to them more saying, you know, what are you going to do next? What's happening with the store? Have, have you thought about doing uh, video calls with people or, you know, just trying to come up with different ideas to help them along? But I think you're right. I think most people went uh, insular in, in their thinking rather than reaching out and coming to some common idea. Yeah, I think uh, that's certainly how I feel. And I think it's a shame, but I think the opportunity is still there because we've learned so much from that period, that hiatus, that the opportunity is still there. And I think that raises an interesting question as well for when you're starting a business. I mean, so many people that qualify in optics are pushed towards taking a big label, taking a big chain and putting that above the door uh, rather than going independent. Uh, and you can understand the security of working for a group but you can also understand the excitement about having your own independent and plowing your own furrow. What do you feel about that now? Because, you know, the economic circumstances are quite challenging for everybody. Uh, how do you feel about following your heart or following your head? I think certainly for me, I started in optics in a big chain. And I think, you know, 90% of people do. What happened to me personally over that journey was that I ended up 
going to a slightly or a lot smaller chain um, that was run by an independent optometrist. So whilst not being uh, what we call like a classic independent boutique where it's one or two stores, this was a, it started off as a seven store operation and uh, a friend of mine and, and I helped the guy build it into something that was 25 to 30 odd stores. That experience of growing a business was quite good, but also we grew it into something that was kind of a monolith as well. So when I left there, I went to a small one-person store, basically one or two-person store, and the difference was incredible, to be honest. But you, in doing that, it's you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants a little bit, I guess, when you when you go into that environment. But you also, I think, learn, you know, a billion times more than you would in a in a big chain store. So I think it's a natural progression uh, for most people to start in a big chain and then gradually work their way down into something a bit smaller. And I think it depends also on your passion. So if you're in a big chain just for the paycheck and that's what's important to you for, for whatever reason outside of work, that's one thing. But I think if you've got a real passion for optics, then at some point you gravitate into the independent sector. Yeah, and there's a generational shift, I think, as well. This is really interesting because you've got all the kids coming through now. The kids, listen to me. But you've got people coming through now who have just grown up in an entirely different environment. You know, they've grown up or just completely surrounded by their world being governed by apps. And they must have a completely different approach to the way that they set up a business, whether it's an independent business or part of a group. Uh, interesting to see what happens there. What do you, what do you think is going to happen? Because we're seeing some new and really interesting technological developments in optics and around optics, and they can really influence the way that people behave in their stores. I think with the um, the advent of um, you know Warby Parker and and uh, other online businesses that have gone to brick and mortar as well, um, we've we've actually learned an interesting lesson over the last probably seven to eight years about how to run an optical business. I think you you and I were the same. We there was one way to do it. We you know you're either in a big chain or you're in a small store, and you put everything into that small store, and you know the fixtures cost you a fortune and and all these other things. What's happened, I think, as you say, with technology as well, is that the avenue to the customer has changed completely. And I think you're right. Young people have a different way of connecting with each other and with people that, you know, I'm a Gen X person. um, And, you, you know, we thought we were starting a revolution. Well, you only had to wait 10 years and it, and everything changed and flipped on its head again. I also think that when it, the way you set up a, your own optical shop 20 years ago doesn't apply anymore. I've, I've seen people set up little pop-up stores or inside another business um, or working with a completely different type of business as well. Um, you know, things that we felt were set in stone as the way to to start an optical business are not that way anymore. You certainly don't need the inventory that we used to think we needed. And I think with technology like 3D modeling, virtual try-on and all those things make a massive difference to how you would, if you or I started a business tomorrow, I, there's no way we would have we would have done it the way we did it last time. I think that's fascinating, Lou. And, and I think there are lots of challenges. And the, the younger generation always thinks they know best and the older generation always thinks they know best too. So uh, I think there's lots to learn. Um, we're entering into a really funny, difficult time economically. Um, there's lots going on with inflation, with war in Ukraine, all sorts of challenges, and people respond in varying different ways when these kind of things happen. What do you think is the best response for an independent high-end optical store? 
I've thought about this quite a bit, and particularly during the pandemic, um, I I did see a lot of businesses closing, uh, particularly here in America, um, and some others that are have consolidated or or made their operation a little bit smaller. But on the other hand, I've seen the opposite being true as well. Um, I think from a retailer point of view, I've noticed that, as we've talked about before, people have learnt new skills, whether it's uh, using Zoom or other ways to communicate with their customer. Um, but I've also noticed that people have ch- started changing the fundamental aspects of their business. Some have let shorten their hours. Um, some others have uh, decided that having the closed door policy to their store has actually made them kind of more independent, if, if that makes sense. A lot of small shops I know worked out pretty quickly that when they closed their door and did everything by appointment, they actually had a better schedule set for their store. They were able to manage uh, busy times and and not so busy times much better. Um, And I know some retailers that have stuck to that and they're not reopening their walk-in door anymore. So I think in a number of ways it changed just because we had to, the way a lot of people do business. And I also think that more to the point, you were saying about the tough economic times, I think the people that didn't have a a real clue or direction of where they were going, most likely are the ones that that didn't make it. I think the people who had a clear focus and a clear image in mind of both product and service are the ones that seem to have pulled through. And and at this end of the pandemic, particularly in the US, um, have come out probably a bit stronger. I couldn't agree with you more, Lou. The clarity of message about what your store stands for through your social media through all of your communication is what's going to drive traffic through your door and that's really important and it goes back to the things that you were saying as well before right at the very beginning when you were talking about what you learned from the lady who was in charge of your record store in the department in the department store and uh, she was talking about customer service and making sure that everything was done to the highest of standards and i think that's something that we've all learned from what we're doing now the very aspect that you're talking about when you talk about spending longer with a client and that improves the basket the 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 takings in the shop i couldn't agree with you more and we're seeing that in the uk certainly i want to move on now lou um you're part of uh, of the team with richard muhar that runs the loft eyewear show uh and the loft eyewear show has really changed the way that people look at trade shows I've really enjoyed, my company's showed there for years now, and we really enjoy the whole atmosphere and the way that we do business. How relevant do you think trade shows are now? We've had a couple of years where we couldn't visit trade shows, either as exhibitors or as visitors. It's just starting to come back to life now, but the whole world has changed. How do you feel about that? I think that um, we talked about community before, so I think that trade shows, in, in my view anyways, are still very relevant. Um, I think we've noticed also in the last four to five years that the way people do trade shows uh, has kind of changed a little bit. I'm not sure if, you know, what we do at Loft has has, uh, spurred any of that on at all. But, you know, certainly in the last six or seven years, it's become, and even in the big trade shows, they've they've made space um, for particular like luxury sectors in in their setup, which I think is super interesting. Probably when Richard... Um, started loft um, it was very unique uh, I, it, I know it took from an outside perspective before I was involved in it it, uh, it always seemed like you know the cool kids were over there 
um, and a very select group of clients. Um, I think that's changed quite a bit in the last five to six years. I think we've got, you know, more people coming. And I think it's it's part of that whole thing we were talking about of uh, one connection, uh, the apps people use and the methods of communication have, have changed. So I think people are more aware of, of trade shows now. And I think uh, the bigger trade shows, whether it's Vision Expo, Silmo, you know, Opti, have, have all come around to the idea that um, it's not one big industry because it's not. Um, the industry is, has got so many different moving parts now than it used to have. Um, you know, back in the day when you and I used to go to trade shows 20, 25 years ago, it was really just one big floor and you had everybody next to each other, could, you know, a case manufacturer next to a lens guy and then a, a frame company. It was, it was all over the place. Um, and I think what's changed certainly in the last five to six years is that um, everything's a lot more specific if, you, if you're into luxury eyewear, you can go to a big trade show and find that spot where all the luxury guys are. Logistically um, and, and operationally, I think trade shows are super important. And certainly in running an event like we do, um, we've noticed that uh, we've had an uptick in, in people coming to our shows apart from the pandemic. But overall, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And I think more people from you know outside, certainly the luxury sector, are finding shows like ours and and the parts of the bigger shows where they can find their their voice. And that's that explains a lot about how it is for brands and how important it is for brands to be there. But for an optician, do you think that an optician needs to come and visit the shows or are there other ways of doing business these days? I think it also it it all comes back to the same thing. When reps didn't have clients to go and see over the last two or three years, they found other ways to reach them. Um, whether it was by telephone or by certainly by Zoom, I know lots of reps who are really who were really terrible probably on camera uh, before, who are now really really good um, because you know necessity helps you find a way, right? Um, and I think for for retailers that uh, may be nervous about going to a, a trade show compared to three years ago, there's a ton more options of how to access product and people than there used to be. I think so. I think Silmo is going to be a really important show this year. There's there's an opportunity for people to get together to understand what's been happening in the market and, and to share that sense of community, which is there. It's not just about looking for products, but it's about listening to people and finding out what's going on in your world. Lou, it's been absolutely amazing talking to you. Thank you so much for giving your time today. You're welcome. It's really good to catch up with you finally. If anybody listening to this wants to find you, where are the best places to get hold of you? Uh, you can go to my website. Uh, it's www.specsaddict.com. Uh, you can also find us on um, Facebook and Instagram. Also, uh, the Loft Eyewear Shows uh, social media, again, on all platforms, uh, pretty easy to find as well. Brilliant. Thank you, Lou. And if you want to find anything about uh, Jason Kirk or about Kirk and Kirk, you can head over to Instagram where we're under Kirk and Kirk, or you can visit our website at kirkandkirk.com. And don't forget that during Silmo, we'll bring you an episode every day of the Right Optics podcast, capturing all the colour, voices, trends and talking points of this year's trade fair. For past and future episodes of the Right Optics, follow or subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Right Optics podcast is brought to you by Silmo the leading trade show for eyewear and optics. Come and join us from September the 23rd until September the 26th at Parc des Expositions at Paris-Villepinte. 
For more information, go to www.silmoparis.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Silmoparis.com.